Welcome to the Job Shop Show, where we talk with the owners, suppliers, partners, and customers of custom manufacturers. Listen and learn the secrets of top-performing job shops, the tools, techniques, and backgrounds that have made them successful, all on the quest of raising the bar for custom manufacturing. I'm your host, Jay Jacobs. This episode is sponsored by Paperless Parts, connecting buyers and suppliers of custom manufactured parts. The Paperless Platform is a secure, ITAR-compliant, cloud-based manufacturing system for suppliers that reduces the amount of time spent on sales, estimating, quoting, administration, and order processing. It offers seamless integration with the accounting and ERP software tools that shops already use, such as QuickBooks, E2, and JobBoss. Paperless Parts was founded with a mission to make manufacturing more accessible by streamlining the quote-to-cash process. Spend less time quoting and more time selling. We are back with another episode of the Job Shop Show. Today, we are going to be diving into banks and what a job shop needs to know to be most successful with banks. And I say banks plural because, as we will learn, essentially banks are commodities today, and the best strategy is to be constantly shopping for the best deal. That's something I learned personally from our guest, Len Morrissey. Len spent 17 years as a commercial banker and was my banker at one point at Rapid. That's how we met. When Rapid needed a chief financial officer, otherwise known as a CFO, Len joined us and, amongst many tasks, managed our banking relationships. Welcome to the Job Shop Show, Len. Thanks for having me on, Jay. Appreciate it. Good to have you here. Before we get into banking, what has always impressed me about you is your diverse skills, Len. You play a really, really mean game of chess. I wouldn't want to play you even if you were blindfolded. So maybe (laughs) you could tell us a little bit about how chess provided you the gateway to more than the small town that you grew up in in Canada. Sure, Jay. Um, yeah, chess is, uh, I have a, I guess, I wouldn't call a love-hate relationship with chess, but a love and tough relationship with chess. Chess is a, a, a fantastic game, and I probably have read more books on chess uh, and practiced chess more than any other subject combined. Uh, but I started when I was really young, um, 11 years old, and I grew up in a small town in, in Newfoundland in Canada, uh, 1,200 people. Great little town, but very small and away from any other sort of large area. Mm-hmm. And uh, chess, chess provided me the opportunity. I, I got pretty good at it pretty quickly. And within a year, I was traveling around North America playing in tournaments. And I remember being 12 years old on the first time going to an airport, first time seeing a plane, first time being on a plane, traveling to a national tournament in Ottawa, the capital of Canada. And it just, it opened my mind to the fact that there's more than just a simple, small town that I grew up in. And it's a great town. A lot of people still stay there. But for me, I had this nagging um, thing at me that I, I should do something different even when I was young. And chess really, really provided that outlet for me to, to understand that there's a lot to this world. And uh, it was just, um, I, I probably travel three or four times a year um, fellows in my god i I still do it so it it provided that outlet for me to understand and know that uh, there's so much more in the world so you're being a little bit modest can you share with us what your ranking was and the title i guess that's bestowed upon the level that you reached yeah i I definitely not not the the strongest player in in the world but uh but basically i'm at a master level 
And I won when I was uh, young, when I was 14 and 15, I won the, uh, the national chess championships for my grades two years in a row and probably played in, I say probably because I haven't actually counted, probably played in 10 national cha- chess championships um, throughout my time. So when I was young, uh, younger, I put a lot more time and effort into it, but, uh, but I, and I had some good results, so it was a lot of fun. Great. And then you decided to get into banking. So you were 17 years as a commercial banker. A lot of companies' financials who you got to see, explore, some good, some bad. Can you just share with us some of your background as a commercial banker to give the audience a flavor of what you did? Sure, absolutely. Um, it, it's interesting. It was my first real job out of, out of uh, university. And um, on day one, it became a commercial lender, which is very rare in those days because you had to usually go through a two-year, one or two-year training program. Uh, but in preparation for this meeting, knowing we we're going to talk about this, I actually tried to sit down and calculate how many, how many banks and how many customers, not how many banks, but how many customers I've actually seen, how many financials I've seen, how many loans I've done. And 17 years ago in Canada, I started with uh, two Canadian banks. Um, I, I probably have looked at uh, and this will sound odd, but you know, probably over twenty-five thousand different financial statements and, and uh, almost wow. as many, many customers. Yeah, wow. And probably had that many lo- that many loans. Um, so it's it's probably even more, Jay, because in banking, it, 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 you know, the risk is pretty uh, they're pretty risk adverse. <clears throat> so I would look at probably five set separate financial statements before we get a loan. So. I'm probably underestimating how many financials I've actually looked at, but I've looked at and talked to tens of thousands of customers and, uh, and looked at many financial statements beyond that. What types of loans did you provide to your customers and what types of customers did you work with? Oh, gosh. So in, in banking for commercial customers, which commercial means basically if you're an entrepreneur, you have some kind of business that's not personal. Um, there's, there's not that many types of loans. Um, uh, and I'll get that to in a second. But types of customers, oh gosh, it could be manufacturing companies. I did a lot of manufacturing companies, service companies. It could be franchises. Um, it, it really is. If you think about any business that's out there, I probably looked at it many times. Uh, so all different types of industries, all different types of business. Uh, and the types of loans, uh, I guess the standard loans you'd look at um, if someone wanted to buy commercial real estate property, if someone wanted to buy equipment, we would do equipment loans. If someone wanted um, working capital loans, which is basically to pay for you know expenses now for um, salaries or for inventory or for to pay your vendors, that would be a line of credit. Uh, did um, and what was SBA an SBA lender for a few banks as well, and that's really just a type of loan. So all the standard types of loans that anyone, anyone that's in business would want. Um, uh, I, at some point, many times, was part of. As a commercial banker, you were effectively a salesperson for the bank, and you had a quota, I would assume, of loans that you were expected to close every year or have in your portfolio. So I don't think a lot of owners of businesses really understand that concept of the the responsibility 
to the bank that a commercial banker has in terms of building their loan portfolio. So maybe you could touch upon that a little bit. Absolutely. Well, well it's interesting, Jay, because as, as a banker for many, many years, people would say to me, would talk about sales, and they would always say, well, you don't really understand sales because you've never been in sales. Oh, on the contrary, for, for, bank, for commercial bankers, really, the, the number one job is selling. And actually, you have two customers. You have the customer, you know, um, whether it's a manufacturing company or a franchise or whatnot. But then you have, you have to sell to the bank. You have to sell the loan. You have to convince them that this customer is a really strong customer with a great balance sheet and profit and loss and, and is trustworthy. So really, you're... In my opinion, the banker, the commercial banker, is the ultimate salesperson because they're selling all the time to both sides of the fence. Um, and, and within that sort of respect, there's so, it's so important for bankers, commercial bankers, I'll say bankers, but what I mean is commercial bankers to actually um, close deals to get customers like you know when we worked together, I don't know how many years ago, 17, 16, 17 years ago, their prerogative every day they wake up is to grow the for the most part, grow the book, which means get more loans, get more customers and bring it in. So uh, it, it sounds like it's a risk adverse, um, strategic, you know, is this good or bad? But most, most of the time it's really trying to bring in business all the time. And it's, uh, it's really important for a customer to know that because, you know, that's, it, it's, it's really what commercial bankers wake up to do every day. Right. You have to make loans to be successful in your role. What, was the total amount of loans in the portfolio you had as a commercial banker at different times? Oh gosh, I first started off with probably a hundred customers and maybe a twenty-five million dollar portfolio. That's sort of early early career, and then I think my last role um, was with TD Bank. I, I was leading a group of uh, probably close to ten lenders, and we had a portfolio of. Um, Close to, I think, 400 million. My portfolio was about 100 million. Um, so it, it really varies. My, my, my career has been very small and very large. My lowest, you know, smallest loan I've ever given, given was $5,000. My largest was 32 million. So it's, uh, it's a whole gamut. So I bring this up because I think it's important for the listener to understand that the commercial bankers, the banks really, they want to make loans. They, they need to make loans. That's, that's their business. And if they are, we'll, we'll get into it, but if they're saying no, it's not because they don't want to. It's just that you probably don't fit a risk portfolio that they're comfortable with. So we'll, we'll get into that down the road. But okay. after you switched and you joined Rapid as the CFO, you were on the other side of the table. And you were amongst a whole bunch of other things. You managed our banking relationships. And what does that mean? Well, first of all, Jay, it was it was absolutely wonderful at the time to be on the other side of the table with all this knowledge. Um, of course, being in banking for seventeen years, if I if I weren't in that role, and this was all CFO role was uh, was coming out of a different area, non banking, I think it would have been very. Um, I think I would have been worried about it. I think I would have had a lot of uh, ideas about banking that, that were not true. Uh, but going, going into that CFO role and understanding what bankers think about every day when they wake up and how hard it is to go and not get a loan or say no to somebody because nobody wants to say that, it was a wonderful, uh, it was a wonderful vantage point. 
And uh, so, so starting off was great because I knew all the bankers in town. I knew all the bankers in, frankly, in, in New England, where I know them, most of them. So it was, uh, it was, a, it was an easy transition for me. Um, and, and in a sense, because I, um, I could call them up and say, hey, let's go for coffee. And one of the things I did a lot, and you did really well, Jay, way back when, was, um, you know, I would go out for coffee with them or breakfast with them or lunch with them on a frequent basis, at least quarterly basis with the bankers that were our bankers. But I would also do it with other bankers, knowing that at some point down the road, our financing needs may change. We may require different things from our bank. So I probably spent um, one meeting a week just getting together with old and new bankers. When I, what I mean by old and new bankers are bankers I knew of bankers I didn't know, just so I could have relationships with them in case I, was, I needed them down the road. I think that's a really important point because when I was doing this solo, I was scared of banks. I didn't understand what they wanted. They they had the money that, that I needed, and I didn't want to upset them so they wouldn't want to give me the money. I really didn't understand the dynamics, and that's what we're going to try to get out of the way today is to have the audience, the listeners say, oh, banks aren't as scary as I think they are. And they are just another, in a sense, supplier. So like any supplier, if you understand what their motivations are and how they work, you can have a better relationship with them. Absolutely. And Jay, I would add to that, not just a supplier, but I would say partner. And yes, that, that's, that's a great, that's a much yeah. better way of saying it. Yeah, yeah exactly. Why, let, let's get to the basics first. Why do banks exist and what are the strengths of banks? What are the weaknesses of banks? Big banks, small banks, how do they differ? Maybe we just talk about banks in general for a second. Sure. Uh, I, I won't get into a thesis on why banks exist, but I will say why banks loan money, if that's okay with you. Sure. Sure. Yes. So banks basically have a lot of deposits and, you know, whether it's an individual who goes in and puts in their paycheck or puts in their a CD or puts cash into their checking or savings account or business does that, banks have a lot of cash that are just basically sitting in, uh, in their accounts, in their um, vault you know, theoretically, not, mm-hmm. not so much anymore. So uh, instead of just sitting there and um, not doing anything, what banks do, a lot of banks anyhow, is that they lend that money out to individuals and commercial uh, customers. Uh, and the reason is that they, went, they wanted to have the money working for them. So if they loan, if they have a lot of deposits and they want to load out a million dollars for a real estate loan, they get interest income back on that uh, and that's how these, that's really one of the primary ways banks make money. So they really want to make the money work for them. In terms of, you've asked about, um, you know, big banks, small banks, or just banks in general, what, what are some of the pros and cons? If, uh, if, if I can go a little bit into that, um, yeah. there are tons of banks out there. And, and this will go back, we'll, go, we'll keep going back to sort of the motivation of the banker. Um, there are so many competitors in the U.S. In Canada, Jay, um, there are very few. It's highly, highly uh, regulated, and there are very few banks. Or frankly, there are five or six big banks there. Hmm. Uh, and it's been it's been a long time, but um, so there's not a lot of competition. So if just being in existence, you get you know uh, 
one fifth or one sixth of the of the the business in the commercial world, for example. In the U.S., is highly unregulated in the sense of being able to start a bank. So there's so much competition um, from from big banks and small banks to get someone's deposits or get someone's loans. So the commercial lenders are fighting every day, as I fought for UJ to get you as a customer many many years ago. It's a it's a fight. It's a struggle every day to try and sell the customer company because there's so many people trying to do the same thing. Which gets to sort of the big and, and, and small bank. Um, big banks uh, have a lot of money to be able to provide to commercial customers. They probably have different types of divisions like SBA groups. They probably have franchise lending. They probably have a manufacturing lending group. So they're very, um, they have a lot of different services, a lot of different ways to uh, help customers. They have a lot of money, so they, they could uh, be able to do larger loans if you need it. Um, on, on the other side for larger banks, uh, they tend to be a little bit more bureaucratic. Uh, mm-hmm. they tend to be, they tend to be a little bit more risk adverse just because, um, that's just how big banks, you know, bureaucracy and risk adverse sort of goes hand in hand. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it, it, I guess another advantage for big ones they are everywhere. Or if you're a bank of America, for example, you're all over the place. So if you do a lot of traveling with your business, you can get access to, uh, to the branches if you need, you need to. Mm-hmm. The smaller banks uh, tend to be more local, um, more community focused, wants to help drive the business and the um, economy locally. Uh, they're probably your friend or probably your poker partner, um, but uh, it's, it's definitely a little, uh, little more hands-on. Um, they don't have as much money, obviously, because their deposit base is probably a lot smaller than, um, I think when I was with Bank of America, Jay, we had 225,000 employees. So if you compare that to a local, a local, a six branch outlet here that has, you know, in New Hampshire that has, I don't know, um, 45 employees, you, mm-hmm. can, you know, they, they don't have as much of a spending ability, uh, but they tend smaller banks tend to be a little bit more flexible and thought. Uh, they got to be a little bit more aggressive in, um, in certain things just to get the business because they're competing against these large, the large organizations. Um, and they t- and they oftentimes uh, are a little bit more risk tolerant in some senses. Okay. Um, you think you think about the one industry, for example, not to go off on a tangent here, but the restaurant industry. Um, sure. Big big banks. Oh my gosh, uh, I, I probably have done five restaurant loans in my life. Big banks hate them. It's <laughs> <laughs> just because you know they're they're risky. And small banks, uh, if they. You know, if, if you have a local lender that knows the individual and believes in the, the concept, uh, they might be able to do it a little bit more than, uh, than larger banks. That's great. That's great. The commercial banker then is the face of the bank. And we had a great relationship when you were with Citizens Bank. I had super relationships with other bankers who I worked with over the years and I still stay in contact with, I found that the more honest I was with them, the better they could help me. And actually, that's part of, I think, what why I enjoyed working with a lot of these folks is they gave me a lot of guidance on how to work within their bank and things, if I wasn't ready yet in their eyes to get a loan they showed me the steps that i had to take to get there so maybe you could also just 
touch upon, which you already have a little bit, but how how best to work with that commercial banker and beyond, say, the lunches or the getting together once in a while, things that you might keep in mind in your yep. relationship? No, no, uh, it, it's a really good point. And it's, it, again, thinking it from the banker's perspective, so if I could walk you through sort of a day in the life of a commercial banker. Perfect. So commercial- that's, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and this is what most of them really do. So you, you wake up, you go into the office, you sit down, and the first thing you do is you look at any overdrafts, or this is the way it used to be, any overdrafts of commercial accounts. So basically any accounts that didn't have enough money to pay uh, uh, their checks, for example, right? Mm-hmm. So you got a first hour, hour and a half to deal with bad stuff stuff that you don't want to do. So that means you got to call the customer and say, please, you know, put some money in. So you got, you got tough stuff to do the first hour, hour and a half in a day. Then after that, then you got to sit down and look at what do I have to look at my 100, 200, 300 clients today? What do I have to renew? So what loans do I had to, had to go about um, making sure they're good for another year? And that's usually a couple hours of work. So, so you got your morning all done, right? So you've got no You've got no new sales. You've got no new customers. You've got nothing done right now because all you're doing is managing your existing portfolio. Mm-hmm. The afternoon comes, and, and uh, this can vary, but this is t- this is typical in, a day in my life when I was a banker. The afternoon comes, and then you start focusing on, I've got a $50 million or a $10 million goal this year to bring in 10, 10 or $50 million of loans. Mm-hmm. Now, what am I going to do? So, so now you've got to sit down and look at all these new applications, or you got to get on the phone and or get in the car and drive to companies to try to get them to provide you the opportunity to do to get loans, and that's and that's half that's a half a day, and so so if if you think about all this work that they had to try to do to maintain and to build new business, what happens is that when they have a customer, uh, say say it was UJ, when they have a customer that mm-hmm. is able to provide them with great information. That's timely, and I'll get into more specifics, but, but give you great information on a timely basis and very clear and honest and truthful, mm-hmm. then guess what the banker does? I don't have to worry about that customer. And the, the moment a, bank, a banker says, that customer there, so in, in your case, Jay, Jay, you were sort of the, the one we said uh, in, in our meetings, we don't have to worry about rapid because we have all the information on them and they're all just always timely. So let's put that to the side and let's worry about other loans. For other customers, gotcha. And it's so important because uh, w- there's only a certain amount of time in a day, and you, you really we don't have enough time. So when a customer provides us, for example, when I say information, um, typically in most relationships, you got to provide quarterly financial statements, accounts mm-hmm. receivable report, accounts payable report, and then yearly stuff, right? And so that's really what it is. You, on the other hand, were sort of the ideal customer because you provided me and the bank, each month, financial statements, the accounts receivable list, the accounts payable list, and not only that, you provide us with a page-long summary of what's going on in the business, what the revenue, what the profitability was, what the growth plans were, and what, what was the best of all of it, what's wrong with it, what's wrong, what's going on that's bad. And that was so beautiful because we felt like no matter what happens, Jay's going to be honest and open, and we're going to know well before anything happens. So we don't – oftentimes, after the first six months, I don't think I read one of those things. <laughs> I had to write them. But uh, it, was, uh, it, was so, it was so important that 
we trusted that you're going to be completely open and honest and good or bad. We, we, we literally put it to the side and say, this is who we don't have to worry about. I'll expand on that a little bit from my perspective for the audience. So I had a mentor, Steve Cherry, who said to me, Jay, you never want to surprise your bank. And the best way not to surprise them is to consistently give them information about your business. And he encouraged me, which took me a little bit to get it going, but it was something we started pretty quickly at Rapid and kept up uh, until we were acquired. But I would send out a monthly email to our investors, shareholders, who were mostly family and friends. I would send it out to our bank. I would send it out to our lawyer and send it out to our CPA. And what it contained were the profit and loss for the previous month. And I would try and get this out by the 15th of the month, 20th at the latest. It would contain the profit and loss year to date, and it would contain the balance sheet as of the end of the previous month. And I also wrote a summary of what happened the previous month and also we defined some metrics that were important that I felt to the running of the business, such as sales the previous month, obviously whether we made money or not. But we also consistently reported the number of new customers. And because we got a lot of business from the internet, we reported how many new customers came from the internet which was a subset of that. And then we also reported the total number of customers because I knew that if our customer base was shrinking month over month, then that was not a good sign. And beyond communicating to the different stakeholders in the business, there were actually some great benefits for me as the owner because Sometimes you have a bad month, and it forced me, whether I wanted to look at it or not, to look at the financials and face reality that I I couldn't paint that rosy picture on it and, oh, it's going to change next month and not look at the cash balance. I I had to do that because I was sending it along to other people, and if it wasn't good, I had to explain it and – It had to be a reasonable explanation, not a story I was telling myself. It also, again, forced me to think of metrics that were important to the business and those beyond the the financial metrics, so the the customers as I talked about. And then I was thinking about this. It wasn't as important for Rapid, but if you are – and it doesn't matter whether you're a job shop in manufacturing or if you're a restaurant – but if you've been doing this for, say, five years, you now have 60 monthly reports that you can share with a potential buyer of your company. And the, I think about it as a buyer of a business. It's the lack of information that makes you uh, – there's perceived risk there. So right. by having a recorded history of the company monthly, you are – 
really opening up communication and letting a potential buyer, if you ever think you're going to sell the company, uh, see what's happened over the years. And there's going to be recessions. There's going to be strong points of the economy. You have that history of what happened at all the different inflection points. That you know, Jay, that's a really good point. You, you build legitimacy with certain stakeholders, mm-hmm. and and I'll give you a, a prime example myself. So when you came to me and I was helping you trying to find a CFO years and years ago, one of the reasons why when you mentioned it to me, hey, Len, maybe you, I had all this sort of uh, built up history of 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 documentation and not this idea like th- this is what we kind of did. Well, do you have anything in writing? Well, not really. We just did it. So it was, it just, it made my decision a whole hell of a lot easier. And I had other opportunities for other places I would never done because I just didn't have that. You you didn't build up that legitimacy and that sort of history of documentation that supported, you know, your actions. And that's, that's a really, really good point. It was, it, it took me an hour or two a month. And that was, was very important as I said, for me personally, and uh, even probably more important for me to understand my business. And of course, there was so many downstream benefits, which, as you just mentioned. And, and Jay, you know, real quickly, it's, um, it's, it really feels like a no-brainer to do it. And it feels like the right thing to do on so many different levels. But from the commercial banker's perspective, it's rare. Yeah. And shouldn't be. It absolutely. <laughs> well, I remember you telling me that the we were a very small business, several million in sales at the time. Yeah. But you said the president of the of the bank, you know, the whole bank <laughs> in New Hampshire knew who we were. And yeah, that, that's rare. <laughs> and, he, and, and, and more importantly, he knew us in a good way. <laughs> he, he knew you in a good way, exactly. If if only ten percent of customers did this they would be the ones that the banks would look at so favorably. And even when times were tough, they would be like, ah, but they, they got control of the business. I'm not worried about it. And it, it's such a relatively easy thing to do in a sense. I mean, there's some psychological hurdles, hurdles to get over. There's some um, things to do, but it is, it is, I wish really Jay, it is less than 1% of the folks that do it. Yeah. It's crazy. You had mentioned previously that manufacturing companies were a large part of the types of businesses you did work with. Why manufacturing companies? What is attractive about them to to you and to banks, I guess? Yeah, I mean, from, from a bank's perspective, um, when you lend to a company, uh, an industry like manufacturing, you're lending to, um, first of all, you're lending to companies that build things. You know, with technology, AI, everything now seems to be related to stuff that is intangible, right? It's a thought, it's an idea, it's an app, it's a soft piece of software. Mm-hmm. But manufacturers are different because they're they're building things. They actually have tangible things you could touch, and importantly for banks, you have tangible things you can hold as assets. So, notwithstanding the fact that manufacturers generally, um, for lack of a better word, live a lot longer than some of the service companies because they actually have stuff they physically build. Um, If a bank, if a bank is going to give money to a, um, um, a manufacturing company for equipment, then it's got the equipment to hold as an asset in case anything ever does go wrong with the uh, company. If it goes under, they've got the asset to be able to resell. So the risk 
profile is, or the risk is mitigated a little bit much, actually much more with say a manufacturing company than a service company. If you, if you finance a service company that is a consulting group, for example, and you give them a $250,000 line of credit, well, you might not have it in the back it up, maybe some receivables, but, mm-hmm. but with, if you give a, a half a million dollars for a piece of um, sheet metal um, equipment and the company folds in two years' time, well, you've got this great, you know, big piece of sheet metal equipment that you can resell to another sheet metal shop and, and recoup hopefully most of the money back. So there's a, there's a risk mitigating factor and mm-hmm. there's a um, uh, sort of the tangible that you could touch, feel, and, and see. And people understand it a lot more easily than, say, if you're going to finance a um, an AI company that has got an idea about how to make security better. Well, what, what does that really mean to a banker that's sort of more traditional? And, and you know, it's good to know that it's, it's important to know that banks typically are traditional lenders. They like to lend what they understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if if bankers understand what you're doing, they will they will tend to lend a lot more than if they don't understand what you're doing. And and frankly, I invest personally the same way. If I don't understand something, I'm going to put money into it because what am I investing to? Something I don't understand. It doesn't work for me. And, and banks are typically like that as well. That makes sense. You want to yes, the, the yeah. bits and bytes of software. What are you and but it's it's becoming more and more so. Yeah, and, and there are there are banks that, that um, there are banks and lending institutions that focus on that now because they and that's great because they have the expertise right. in house to be able to understand what that means. But traditional banks typically don't. But but they are definitely increasing in that. that that's a really good point. They're increasing in that sort of uh, knowledge base that they're able to to do more of it. When you were looking at a potential new customer or I guess a, a, a customer, you, you spend a lot of time on the financial statements. So I think it's important for the listener to think about what the bank and banker are looking at in a profit and loss statement and, and a balance sheet. And if there's any other statements that you would, would look at, maybe we can really get into some of the nitty gritty there. Sure. Um, you know, I'll, I'll make it a little bit easy. So when the first thing a banker does when it has a prospect, uh, prospective customer, they'll ask for three years financial statements, mm-hmm. uh, business financial statements. So we'll say, give me your company or your CPA prepared or reviewed or audited financial statements. They'll take those three years financial statements. They'll also get your personal financial statement, and they'll also get your personal tax returns. So let's let's not worry about that part of it because that's important, but it's on a peripheral. So for for an existing business that's already has three or plus more years, they'll grab those financial statements, and what they'll do is they'll put it into a um, a piece of software, a bank software that they'll 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 throw in the financial statements, and then they'll find out what the trends are. And what's really important for bankers, or for the most part. I'm generalizing now, but is there's a few things. So one, they want to see what the growth of the company is. So they'll look at the top line, which is the revenue line or sales. They'll mm-hmm. say, okay, how is the company overall performing? Are they, are they flat in sales? Are they growing or are they declining? So generally speaking, what banks want to see, uh, like any, any investor, they want to see companies that are growing, that are increasing in their sales. Sure. Uh, that's that's important. If you're not increasing, it doesn't mean you can't get it. Or if you're declining, it doesn't mean you can't. It might be a strategic reason. 
there might be different reasons, but, but generally speaking, they, it's positive to show growth. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's the first thing. And then that, that adds a lot of questions underneath it. Then they'll look at things, for example, gross margin, which is, which is effectively sales minus your cost of goods sold, which is any expense related to the building of a product for manufacturers. Um, and there are, th- that's important, not, not completely vital because it's not necessarily one standard for all businesses, but they'll want to understand more importantly, what the difference is per year of that gross margin is. So is it consistent? Is it changing? Is it, is it fluctuating too much? So it's consistency is a really, really important part for bankers looking at companies. Um, In the manufacturing world, items that would be included in gross margin would typically be your, your labor on the shop floor, your materials, your finishing costs, such as plating, maybe uh, is there anything else that was that I missed there in gross margin there or, or, or uh, the cost of goods sold? Uh, probably Jay, but I think you've, I think you've captured most of what, what I can recollect. Yeah, uh, because it, la- it is, la- yeah. labor and materials are such a big part of a job shop's operating costs. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and if they if they fluctuate a lot, let's say that theoretically sales are growing five percent a year, but your gross margin is fifty percent one year, and then seventy five the next year, and then thirty five, and that shows some some ish, possible potential issues with how you're running the business, how you're managing the gotcha. cost. Yeah, so it, it really trends are are okay. almost more important than actual numbers. Okay. Um. So we talked about uh, the cost, of the, the gross margin. We talked about the sales. Um, I think that the most important there there are various, but the, one of the most important measurements for banks in terms of how whether a company uh, whether they're going to uh, lend to companies is basically what we call EBITDA, which is earnings, which is net income uh, before interest, tax, depreciation, amortization. It's really free cash flow. I know that's exactly not the definition, but um, when banks look at specifically a loan to a company, they have to consider whether the company can repay the loan or not. And they, they, they create, basically they find out what the EBITDA is, what the um, earnings before interest, blah, 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 what that is versus what the debt's going to be over the next year. And if the, if those ratios hit great, if they don't hit, not great. If they hit this year, but didn't hit the last two years, it could be issues. So, but that measurement, that understanding what uh, the ability to be able to pay back debt is vital for banks. If that ratio is not good, um, then then it's going to be very tough to, to lend. And it's important for manufacturers with NoJ because if you before you go into sort of a lending world, it's easy to do this calculations. It's easy to understand what banks are going to look for. So it's you can prepare yourself a little better maybe than if you didn't know this, if you didn't have this knowledge. And from what I've seen you could actually be showing a profit in your business but have a negative cash flow or not a lot of cash flow, which you, you, as a business owner, you say, great, I'm, I'm making money. Look at my net income. Look at my profit and loss statement. But the bank is saying that's, that, that's fine, but you don't have enough cash to – repay the loan. You know, Jay, it, it reminds me so much of uh, my first year with Bank of Nova Scotia back in 
six, I think it was, mm-hmm. in Ottawa. And when I, when I got the job, I sat in with the branch manager at the time who did commercial loans, and he, he, asked me, he asked me the question, and he asked another person the question, the other person about net income, whether mm-hmm. if they have a positive net income, is that good or bad? And the other person said, absolutely great. And he basically, did, he basically fired the other commercial lender. <laughs> <laughs> and we were like, oh my gosh, why? And the reason he said, because net, net income means nothing in, in, in a sense of cash flow. Because you, like you said, net income is, is a purely, um, is something that's on paper and not necessarily in your bank account. So if you have a, say you have a million dollar business and your net income, your bottom line, your net income is $100,000. Well, that's great. But is that in your account? Well, not necessarily. Because maybe you have, Maybe it went and bought, you need to go buy a piece of equipment for $100,000. Well, that's not factored into the net income, but that factors into cash flow. Um, or maybe you have a lot of debt that's not factored, all of it's not factored in the in profit and loss statement, and that's killing your cash flow or your net income. So, yeah, net, net income is, is sort of one of those misnomers that, um, that, that can really um, – put you in the wrong direction. And it's, it's, it's definitely, like you said, it's definitely not something that you, you want to focus too much on it because it's, it's not really cash in hand. When you buy a piece of equipment and tax law is always changing. So it, we'll, we'll say this with a caveat towards that, mm-hmm. but this gets into the balance sheet because the, typically the piece of equipment is not something you can expense and needs to go on your balance sheet as an asset and, mm-hmm may be depreciated. Right. So if you could tie some of what you just said to a balance sheet and things that you were looking at on the balance sheet that were important to you. Absolutely. And, and that's the second half of it. So profit loss is really important. Um, but balance sheet is a spot in time. And, and, and what there's, there's a few main things in balance sheets. One is the primary one you looked at was the net worth of a company. So effectively, what are your assets? Minus your liabilities. So if you're thinking about it for individuals, you know, your house, your cars, your cash and account versus your, your mortgage, your car loans and all that kind of stuff. In a, in a business, it's the same thing. So if you have a manufacturing business and you have a negative net worth, for example, which means you have more liabilities than you have assets, that's probably something where a bank goes, oof, that's, that's, that's challenging. So, so net worth, which is basically your value of your company, is important. Uh, especially the trend of it. Even if, it, even if it's negative, sometimes banks will lend to it. There are other things, though, that are, that are almost as important, if not more important. And one is uh, working capital. And, Jay, what that is, as, as you full well know, that is basically your, your current assets minus your current liabilities. Why that's so important is that that is your ability to repay or the, or the pay current stuff within a year. So, Could you define what current assets are? Yeah. So current assets are uh, things like, for example, uh, cash on hand. Mm-hmm. Um, they would be uh, accounts receivable. So basically, uh, when you do work for somebody, they owe you money and it's usually within 90 days. So, uh, and it's also inventory. If you have inventory on hand, usually, you know, depending on the business, it might, uh, you might sell it today, you might sell it a month's time or six months time. Mm-hmm. And that is, and so current assets are things that you can convert to cash typically within 12 months mm-hmm. minimum on the maximum. Sorry. Uh, current liabilities are those outlays of cash um, that you have to do within a 12 month period. 
Um, and, and why that's so important is because the, the two main reasons why companies fail in general, uh, the first one is management. Uh, so, you know, you've got to have the right people managing and owning. But the second one is insolvency is, is the, the lack of ability to be able to convert cash quickly to pay off existing expenses and, and debt. So mm-hmm. if you have a negative or, or very thin working capital position, so very, very thin current assets versus current liabilities, your ability to be able to operate in a year is, is very tight. Is very very difficult. Anything goes wrong, you might not to be able you might not be able to pay your debt back or your expenses or your vendors or whatnot. So when company when banks look at banks uh, or customers, they like to see, for example, two to one. So you have two two dollars of cash in this year mm-hmm. that's available uh, for one dollar of I guess uh, outlay of cash. Um, so if, if that, that's a vital one because that, that, that more than anything will help define whether you're going to succeed in the next year or not. Pretty simple. They want you to have more cash on hand than you're going to have to spend on your debt obligations. <laughs> exactly. And, and it sounds like, well, of course they do, but more importantly, the, the, the business wants that because it's, right. yeah, exactly. Yeah. How about some red flags either on the profit and loss statement or the balance sheet that would have you just throw up your arms? I'm sure there's some common ones out there. Yeah, there's lots. Um, we bankers love ratios, so we tend to have a couple of ratios that we, we calculate really quickly. One is debt to equity. So the level of debt you have in the business versus your versus your net worth. And um, you know, t- typically there is more debt than net worth, but if it's too high, if the ratio is way too high, that means you're probably over leveraged, which means you just have too much debt. So if you think of it from a personal point of view, if you look at someone who's got six cars and everything has a loan and they got, they got a mortgage, a half a million dollar mortgage on a home that's valued at 600,000 and they got too many loans out there, too many credit cards. Uh, so, so debt to equity, if it's too high, it makes bank, it makes bankers nervous. Mm-hmm. Um, Trend analysis is so, so important. So if, um, if things are declining or going the opposite way over time, that makes bankers extremely nervous uh, because they're not sure what the future is going to hold. And the stories of, well, we're turning it around, well, we're doing something different, well, we're, that's hard. The, 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 trends, the trends are almost more important in overall scheme than all the other stuff individually. Sometimes owners in small businesses do things that help them out, but then when they go to try to apply for a loan, they don't make themselves look as attractive as possible to the bank. So in particular, the way that an owner is compensated, I know, gets gets a little hairy at times. Maybe there's some stories or observations you have on that yeah the good thing about the overcompensation by owners and you never did that jay so thank you very much so that we didn't have to worry too much about that uh, but um we can always add that back and sort of the cash flow but what a lot of business owners and i i'm uh, i'm telling you jay they're probably over 50 percent i would sit down at their office or their place of business mm-hmm. and they would they would look at me straight in the eye and they would be smiling and say we didn't make any money. We didn't pay any taxes for the last three years. And then I would, <laughs> I would, 
<laughs> I would just, oh, okay. And, and they would be proud of that. And, and in some ways, that's a great achievement. But from a banking perspective, if you're not showing any um, positive net income and you're not paying any taxes, that means you don't have any debt serviceability or you have very, very you don't have ability to repay stuff back. So mm-hmm. if you've got creative counting or you do ways to make the, make the profit loss not look strong, then it's really going to impact the way you're going to be looked at from a lending perspective. Right, because the bank, even though you may have a good story to back it up, and we didn't touch upon this, but the commercial banker does not decide whether or not to give you a loan. There's a loan committee at the bank, and they are, my understanding at least, is pretty black and white. The The commercial banker may be able to provide a little flavoring to it, but otherwise they're going by numbers, right? Yeah, well, it's interesting. It gets back to the big and small bank, uh, but big big banks tend to have committee for larger loans or a signing authority relationship for smaller loans. So in okay. other words, you've got a banker, mm-hmm. and if it's a small loan, maybe their boss has to sign off on the on the application or the oh, approval. Okay. If it's a mid-sized loan, maybe it's another person above that person to sign off. Could you define what smaller loan, mid-sized loan, what those numbers are? Yeah, so so everyone looks at it differently, but generally speaking, anything under a million dollars is considered a small loan, small business oh, loan. Okay. Yep. And some banks will say a half a million, some will say two fifty, some banks will say ten million. So, but it's it generally speaking, if you're doing a million dollars in loans, it's probably considered a small business loan or small mm-hmm. loan. And if you're doing okay. anywhere for five million, it's medium size, and anything over five million is 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 like large loans. Um, so the, the lower the loan amount and it, it differs every single bank, but generally speaking, the lower, the, the lower, the loan amounts, half a million and under, you probably got a boss that signs off on your loan. If you're a commercial lender, okay. if it's 5 million and under, again, depending, this is various with all banks, but, um, it is probably one or two signing people above your boss. And if it's a larger loan, or if it's a small bank that just doesn't have a lot of cash or they got to be really, really protective, they might have a committee of people that literally once a week or twice a week or once every two weeks, there's a committee of lenders, um, uh, chief lending officer, chief risk officer, maybe the president. They all sit in, in a room mm-hmm. and the lender sits there and says, you know, here's five copies of the, of the application of the approval. They all read it and they all make comments. They all, and then they all raise their hand whether they want to do it or not. So that's, that's called a committee based, uh, approval and yeah so that's that's sort of some of the some of the ways ways look at and and the larger and the more people you get involved in the decision making for a loan uh the more they're going to go by the numbers that's just it's just sort of the natural way of 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 doing it sure does the type of loan or some types of loans easier to get than other types and maybe we could just talk about types of loans in general, the line of credit or working capital, an equipment loan, a building loan. Yep. How do, how do those different types play into that? Yeah. So, yeah. So your three primary types of loans are your line of credit, which is you, you, you get a line of credit for working capital needs. So mm-hmm. typically, uh, typically it's for just the, the offset, the difference in timing. So you pay your vendors, but you get paid a little, a little bit longer and you need a line of credit to help um, give you cash until you get paid. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have, uh, and they're, they're very, very common. They're probably considered the riskiest loan 
Now, so, some, some lenders would say differently, but generally speaking, they're a little bit riskier because there's no true hard asset that is um, backing the loan because you have, you have receivables, which is basically someone's promise to pay you back. Right. Um, but they're probably the most common, but they're usually the lowest amounts too. So, you, you, know, you know, you're not getting, unless you're a large company, you're not getting a lot, a massive line of credit. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have equipment loans. So if you're a manufacturer, you, ha- you want to go buy a, um, a sheet metal machine or you want to go buy a, a machining center. Mm-hmm. Um, then, you, you know, bank loves to do that because they'll, they'll finance 50 to 80% of it, for example. And they'll have a hard piece of uh, collateral um, that if anything goes wrong, they can take and resell. So that's, that's a, that's a, a if, if everything else is equal, that's a no-brainer. Mm-hmm. Banks love to do that. Okay. And the next one is real estate. Real estate is actually very, very common. And while not everybody does it, it it's, it's a, banks love it because it's real estate. And especially in New England where uh, there's not a lot of space left, um, especially Massachusetts. So if you, if you have a building, chances are if, if the loan goes bad and a bank needs to re- recoup it, they, they can resell it and, and make most of the money back. So the banks love doing those if the numbers work. Um, so those are three primary ones, um, and, and again, riskier line of credit and less risky are the stuff that they have a tangible sort of value to it that they can use. How can a business person get into trouble with their line of credit and using it in ways that maybe they shouldn't? Oh, it's the uh, it's what bankers hate is when, for example, <laughs> when they don't have it approved and and, and lenders use. Our customers use their line of credit. Uh, this is where most of the problems come when they use the line of credit for things other than working capital. So um, many times I've lent, for example, half a million dollar to a customer, and they uh, I do the renewal a year later, and there's a three hundred thousand uh, dollar piece of the line of credit gone because they use it to buy equipment. And I sit there and go. This was for working capital, not something that's going to stick around for 10 years. And they're like, oh, yeah, but we just wanted to buy it. So, it, it, yeah, you, it's important to understand the purpose of the loan because bankers expect you to use it for that. So if you're not going to do that, just talk to the banker and try to have some things change within that relationship so they understand what you're going to use it for. But it's very important to understand that there are reasons and, and purposes of a certain um, loan facility and try to adhere to that. Otherwise you tend to surprise the banker, which is not what you want to do. I was always told or taught that you should pay down your line of credit to zero once a year or that your bank will not be happy with you. Is that still true or how do, how do you, you think banks are looking at that? Um, well, it's twofold, right? So from a banker, it depends on the customer, depends on the relationship. Oftentimes, if you're newer, what the banks will say is that we want you to pay this down to a zero every year, and that represents your ability to be able to do so. So if you're, if you're starting off in a new banking relationship and you're starting off in a newer type co- company, they might require that because okay. it is, yeah, it's, it's sort of like you have the ability to do it. Um, but if you're more, um, I guess if you've had a longer relationship, there's more trust built, built up and your financials are really good. A lot of times they'll just remove that, that, uh, caveat, that covenant and say, you don't have to worry about that because you know, we want your interest income. So please keep using it. So it really depends on what stage you are in your business and how your financials look. You talked about 
assets securing the loans, but a lot of times in a small business, the owner has to sign a personal guarantee. And when I first started out and you were kind enough to share some of your wisdom with me, I, I thought they were that that was just required. It was black and white. And I was exposed that there's a lot of gray in there. So I guess, first of all, are they required? And when I say black and white, I mean guaranteeing either the full value of the loan or nothing at all. But maybe you could also talk about partial guarantees, some some of the strategies and options there. And ideally, it made me sleep better at night when we finally got my personal guarantee off the loan. So just I'll throw that out, just a wide, yeah. wide-ranging chat about personal guarantees. Sure. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a great uh, conversation or a great, great point, Jay, because the, the personal guarantees are probably what um, customers hate the most because it, it, feels, um, it feels like, oh, you know, you're, you, I have a business and you want other stuff from me and you're, you're risk, uh, you know, the customer's risking their livelihood or their family, home <laughs> or whatever it might be. So it's really a touchy subject. Yeah. Um, and I will be completely transparent here in my 17 years of banking. I would say that 90%, if not 95% of our customers all sign guarantees. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean they had to, one. Uh, generally, banks love personal guarantees. So we will, banks in general and bankers in general will ask for them. They will ask for everything because the more they have as a uh, guarantee, as collateral, as protection, it mitigates banks' risk. So we'll, we're going to ask you for everything. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's incumbent upon the customer to negotiate, really. And most don't. Most will just say, okay, yes or no. Um, some have to. So we will definitely early on in a banking world, a banking relationship with the customer, typically you're probably not going to get away with not signing a personal guarantee. But as you, as you get more experience, as you have more um, uh, a relationship with the bank and you've always paid your debt and you're, and at the same time your business is growing and you're building up your net worth and you've got good, a good financial sort of story, then you really can start talking about, and you should do it really in the beginning like you did, Jay. I remember our first conversation when we first sat down and you're like, I don't want to do a personal guarantee. I'm like, um, all right, that's not how it works. But, <laughs> oh, but I can tell you, Jay, in your file, literally in your file, it was always personal guarantees are a pain in Jay's butt. So we've got to keep, we talked about it every single year and we didn't talk about anybody else who didn't ask. So you got to ask about it. You got to bring it up all the time so that when you're financially ready, when the financials look good, then we can start trying to do something with that personal, personal guarantee. Um, so at that point when your business is sort of strong enough to be able to hold its own and you're not to- the business is not totally dependent upon the owner, which in your case, you know, if you're mm-hmm. small, it's probably dependent upon the owner. Uh, and assuming you've had lots of great relations, great discussions about personal guarantees in the past, you've got to start asking the question to your commercial banker. I don't want to have a personal guarantee. What have I got to do? Or what strategy or, or what, 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 what can we do tomorrow? So for example, with you and I, I think what we did, our first thing was, to, to get the banks ready, what we did was, uh, if you can remember, we asked the bank to put covenants in place that if you met those covenants, that they would reduce the guarantee by, I think, 50%. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we started doing that, and, and that w- we, had, we had a relationship with three different banks at the time, 
So one bank was requiring full guarantees. The other was full guarantees. But the other bank was basically saying, yeah, we can, we can help you with that. If you hit this covenant, we'll reduce your guarantee by 50%. And it was, it was not something that's in their um, manuals. It was purely a negotiation tactic to say, if you want to continue to have our business, then you're going to have to help us and be flexible enough with us to be able to do that. And so that was one strategy in that. Uh, do you recall? Yeah. I, yeah, I remember that. I also remember discussions that it, as an alternative to percentage, it might be capped at a dollar amount. So, oh, I forgot that one. Good one. <laughs> That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. And I, I can't remember what the dollar amount was, but basically say, so yeah, you know, your loans are $5 million. I'm just making numbers up right now. Mm-hmm. I can't recall exactly. Your loans are $5 million and we'll cap it at $1.5 million. Sure. You yeah. mentioned the word covenants. Could you just quickly define that for the listener? Yeah. Covenant is, is a bank term that basically says, this is something we're going to put into your document, to your loan document, that you have to meet uh, as the customer. So the customer, for example, if there's a covenant of a debt to equity, so your level of debt over your equity is maximum four to one, the covenant measures that at the end of a uh, of a renewal term, you know, at the end of a year, the bank will look at the financials and say, okay, this company, this manufacturing company has a debt to equity of four to one, and they're coming in three to one. Great. They, the, the watch call was um, uh, approved or it was, um, it was okay. So we're good. If it was worse than the covenants, in other words, it was bad. It was five to one. Then all of a sudden you broke a covenant and now the actual lending relationship is a little bit at risk because mm-hmm. what you promised you were going to do, which is no promise because you still have to you still have to try to do it, but um, it's not guaranteed. I should say. Uh, now the banks have the ability to be able to say to you, "Now we need to renegotiate, or or we possibly might kick you out because you didn't hit your covenant, you didn't hit your ratio, you didn't hit your um, mm-hmm. might, um, whatever the percentage." Or and it, it doesn't necessarily need to be a ratio of um, financial ratios. It could be simply you need to you need to do something um, like pay your line of credit off in full or in half. Mm-hmm. So it could, it could be a variety. It's, but basically it's a promise by a customer to do something that the bank wants done and it's written in there and signed off by all parties. It's the end of a term. I think it's important to note that, again, covenants are a great negotiation point for the business owner because the bank will use the, uh, as our corporate attorney called it, the grab-all uh, approach. <laughs> right. and Sure. Why not? If you're the bank and then that way they can look at a variety of covenants and if they, for whatever reason, think you're at risk, they can point out something that you failed to, to meet. But we were really successful in our last loan. I think we only had two covenants in the entire loan. And those were the metrics, whether we, whether or not we were being successful in the bank's eyes. So, the fact that you can negotiate covenants and less covenants is better than more covenants. Is that a good way of putting it? It, it absolutely is. And Jay, you're so correct in, in what you're saying because covenants can, what covenants do sometimes to customers is they help, they manage the business and you don't want bankers to manage your business. So for mm-hmm. example, let's talk about the, the debt to equity covenant. So if a bank comes in and says, uh, Jay, we want a two and a half to one debt over equity ratio by the end of the year. And you know that you're going to go out and buy a truckload of equipment because you're going to hire another 10 salespeople and you're really going to drive revenue and your debt to equity at the end of the year is going to be four to one. You know it. 
Mm-hmm. So if you if you sign off on that, you're basically saying putting your banking relationship at risk for the end of the year, knowing that you're going to reinvest. So we did this a couple times, Jay. We would we actually had debt covenants. Um, I think one of the one of the last loans we did, we had them over a two year three year period that they were really high in the beginning, and then after a the year they lowered, and after the year they lowered because we right. knew what you we were going to do as a strategy. So you, you don't take those covenants blindly because they could actually change the direction and strategy of your business and you don't want to do that. So look at them really carefully. And you made a great point too, is that they don't have to be fixed through the term of the loan. They can just like a personal guarantee adjust over time. Absolutely. And bankers will want to do the easiest thing for them. And that is let's get, let's get a typical document. Let's get them to sign everything and we'll just renew it at the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, that that's an easy thing for us to do because we're like, you know, we don't want, to, we don't want to have to figure out and we don't have to try to convince the committee or my boss why we had to alter this. Um, but if, if the commercial customer comes and says, that's not going to work and here's why, and here's what we need to do, they will absolutely listen and they will want to get the loan done. If it's a good enough customer, good enough financials, they'll be flexible enough to fight for you on your behalf. But, but it's, it's incumbent upon the commercial customer to really understand that and do it. Otherwise, it's going to be the, le- you know, it's going to be the path of least resistance for the banks. That's, they're just going to do whatever they, they're going to do, do, get the most to grab all as much as possible. So we've just talked about some negotiating strategies with banks. And one thing that I think is really critical before we wrap up here is for the business owner for the shop owner to understand that say you have a three-year loan it, it actually your best point of negotiation is when you are getting the loan not in the middle of the loan and not that our banks were doing a bad job for us but there is a lot less flexibility in the middle of loans than there is at when you get a new loan so we actually moved from bank to bank probably more frequently than most businesses, but we had strategic objectives in changing the business relationship, the banking relationship every time we did that. I think it's what, what the point I'm trying to get across to the business owners here is that you are not married to your bank and (laughs) it's, there are a lot of banks out there. They're hungry for your business. If your bank has no flexibility, it just keeps saying no. You have a decision. You can stick with your bank and just sort of suck it up. Mm -hmm. Or you can say, I don't think I'm getting the best terms and they are not actually being a partner with me because in a partnership, there's give and take. So, it's incumbent upon you, the owner, to explore what other banking relationships should look like. Maybe you could comment on that. That is absolutely so important. And, you know, it's, it's so interesting being on the other side. So as a banker, what I would always tell my, what I always tell my customers <laughs> is that, please don't leave. You're never going to find another me. <laughs> but, but the reality is that when they came to me and they said, here's what we need. And here, and it was different than what I could provide. 
I still try to keep them, but I, re, I knew that it, they probably would be better off going elsewhere. Now, on the other side of it, you know, when I was with, with, with UJ and, and, and Rapid, um, I ch- we changed a lot. And, and even though those individuals and different banks were, were close friends, mm-hmm. and, uh, there was a president of one bank who was my original boss when I came here, and he was wonderful, and I had, we had to leave him for a lot of money on the table. And he provided us fantastic, a fantastic proposal but yeah. it wasn't good. And it wasn't good enough, though. It wasn't good enough for what you wanted, for what I wanted, for what the business needed. It wasn't flexible enough. So, you know, it, it was – I always have alternatives, always talk to other people, and, and get other options. And when you do it, like you said, Jay, when you do it early on, you know, uh, when your you know, loans are up for renewal and your financials are really good, um, you know, maximize the opportunity and go to the ones that, that – um, you know, that, that you know you can work with, but also that can adhere to what you're really trying to achieve. What I would say, though, is, is some banks, if you, if you change banks just for that one little piece that you're not getting somewhere else, but you don't really trust what they're going to do in the following year, I would avoid that. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah we changed them a lot, but we knew who was behind them. We knew the people well, and we, yeah, we were able to make sure that, you know, we weren't putting ourselves in a bad situation. I remember one banking relationship that Rapid changed because I felt handcuffed was that we had a building loan that was tied to our line of credit and equipment loan. Essentially, that we 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 couldn't do one without the other, and I think it's important to think as a owner that if you do own a building, you number one, don't want to have the loans from the building tied to any other loans. And also that it may be two different banking relationships because some bank may feel more comfortable with the real estate aspect and another bank may feel more comfortable with the equipment asset. Right. Absolutely. And, and, and you, you couldn't get what you wanted. Um, what you, what you felt what, what, that was right. So, you know, mm-hmm. you, you developed another relationship and it's interesting because at one point, uh, as you remember, Jay, we had three different banking relationships, which banks, by the way, don't like because they got to share the risk and they have a lot more work to do. Mm-hmm. But, um, I was very, really proud of it as a customer because we got three different banks to agree to do it. And it was a little bit more work for us, but, uh, it was a, it was a, it was a, it showed that we were doing the right things and we had a lot of trust, in a lot of people and we had really good bargaining chips down the road. It was a better business decision for us. Exactly. Is there anything else we should know about banks or banking relationships that we didn't cover yet? Uh, no, I think we covered a lot. Jay. I, I would yeah. reiterate that, that your bankers are our partners or our friends are people to, to talk to, to get, mm-hmm referrals from to to really to 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 be close to um the people that are not close to the banks are are more subject to uh, be at risk down the line so i would say use your bankers as a partner as much as possible yeah reach out to them and see them at networking events they often are at chamber of commerce meetings at charity events if you like to golf bankers i always <laughs> seem to see that they like to golf so they, they do yeah humanize humanize the banker and and yourself 
and and they'll fight because they're humans. Nobody wants to right. nobody wants a loan to go bad or nobody wants to lose a customer. They you want your banker working hard for you, and the only way they truly do that if if they know you as a person and like you, and they'll go to bat for you. And that's it's it's not manipulation; it's friendship and it's it's partnering. And then and because you'll do the same for them. Mm-hmm. This seems like a good place to wrap up, Len. We've covered a lot of ground. And I think our audience, even beyond job shop owners, will gain a lot of valuable insights on how to be a better customer for banks. Uh, one final, anything else you want to add? No, thanks for having me, Jay. It's been fun uh, sort of uh, talking about my old career. and it's, uh, I still use it every day, but I, I appreciate, the, appreciate the time and having me on. Absolutely. I, I think this is so important for a business owner. You also, though, in your new career, do consulting for companies who are looking for help in navigating their banking relationships. Where could someone find you or reach you? Yep. Um, a couple ways you can find me on LinkedIn under my name, uh, Len, Len Morrissey. And as well, um, my email address, I could give it to you, Jay. Sure. Yep. It's uh, Len, L-E-N Morrissey, M-O-R-R-I-S-S-E-Y at Comcast.net. Great. Great. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of The Job Shop Show. Hopefully, you found some nuggets that will enable you to more cost-effectively buy some equipment, get a line of credit, buy that piece of real estate that you're hoping to buy. Until next time, keep those spindles turning and those presses cranking. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.